Hello and welcome to Project Next. My name is Finn Blake and I'm using coffee dates to investigate the minds of CEOs, entrepreneurs and world leaders. I'm extremely excited to be bringing you unparalleled insight into some of the greatest minds out there. I should say, usually CEOs, entrepreneurs and world leaders are three separate people, but I am incredibly excited for today's episode as today's guest is actually a combination of the three. Wait, what? Well... My guest today is a veteran of the financial services industry, having spent over 25 years at Goldman Sachs in New York City, including a stint as managing director and partner. She then left Goldman to found her own wealth management firm, Linden Global Strategies, which acts as a multi-family office for clients all over the world. As well as this, she serves on a number of non-profit boards, including Land's End, Advance, and many more. I'm beyond pleased to welcome my next guest, Josephine Linden, who is going to provide all the advice for students who are considering pursuing a corporate career. You have to hear it to believe how she went from being a uni student, who was a mainstay on Sydney's beaches, to running the biggest investment bank in the world. If you like or hate this episode, let us know on our socials. And don't forget to subscribe and tell everyone you know. Josephine Linden, I'm absolutely delighted to have you on Project Next, especially given the fact that you've been such a great mentor for me in my career so far. So thank you so much for joining me and and really looking forward to our chat. Absolutely delighted to be here, Finn. Thanks for having me. No problems at all. And so, Josephine, obviously the premise of this uh, podcast is based around the fact that we have coffee dates, but it doesn't seem practical for you to be having coffee at this time of day over in New York. So what have you got on your end of the, the video here? Well, I actually have my cup of tea. I want you to notice it's an Australian tea. I also want you to notice even more important is I have my Tim Tams. Oh, lovely. My second question as well is that I know you love books and you've got a very impressive library of books and you're always reading something different. So what are you reading at the moment and what should my listeners and our listeners be reading? Oh, I think people can read whatever they want to, but I just finished reading a book called The Feather Thief, uh, which is about a man who actually steals feathers in an English museum and Natural History Museum. And it's really um, quite entertaining and most enjoyable. So I thoroughly recommend it. Wonderful. And so what importance do you place on reading and, and how important has it been in, in you know, uh, actually giving more knowledge to yourself? I don't think any of us ever stop learning. And the reality is, is there's so much to learn and there's a world out there and it's so exciting. And I think by reading, you can really understand different kinds of ideas, how different philosophies, different time spans, how people think. And it allows you to talk just like you asked me a question. I mean, be like me asking you how the footy is. I know you'd know exactly who's winning and what's going on. If the season's even started, I guess it might not have started yet. Yes, it has started, right? Yes. So, you know, it's like trying to make conversation with people. And I've always read some book, like you asked to be a question about what I'm reading most recently. So I can talk about that. Now, Josephine, I, I do want to go right back to the start because I'm very excited to hear a little bit more about your journey uh, in your professional career and as, as I'm sure my listeners are. And, and I think going back to the very start will be uh, very helpful in, in sort of depicting the journey that you've had. So can you sort of tell me about your childhood and what are the recollections of being grow- growing up in Sydney? Because obviously you live in New York now, but uh, what are your recollections of Australia and Sydney? 
I love Sydney. I still love Sydney. Uh, my recollections are I went to a fabulous school. I was very fortunate. I went to a school up top of a hill called Kambala, uh, which is actually where uh, what our chief of staff is from as well. Uh, and I have a fellowship that I give to Kambala students, which is a phenomenal way of giving back to the school. Uh, my memories of the beach. That's where we spent our life was at the beach. After school, head down to the beach. Before school, would head down to the beach. Um, that's what I remember. And in fact, if you have a look right there, there's a picture of my favorite beach in the world and that's called Bondi Beach. Very good. So you've maintained that very close connection to Australia, which is uh, very impressive. And, and I love that. And I'm sure a lot of other people will in Australia. But so I, I just want to go back to your experience at school. Did you have any idea in those early high school years of what you actually wanted to do because you're a veteran of the financial services industry now, but did it always look like that for you? Well, absolutely not. And in fact, I don't think I've ever shared this story with you, Finn, but I almost didn't finish high school. Uh, at the end of uh, doing what was then called the school certificate, I actually had won a scholarship to Secretarial College. And I started my first day at the Metropolitan Business School and I learned the shorthand for an R, which I still remember goes like that. And that day I was very fortunate because I also won a Commonwealth scholarship, which allowed me to go back to the last two years of school and uh, for the Commonwealth to pay for it. So I was pulled out of secretarial school and went to finish my last two years of school. If it hadn't been for that, and I wasn't the greatest student to be candid, uh, I did okay, but I certainly was never at the top of my class. Um, I didn't study that much. Remember, I spent a lot of time at the beach. And uh, so when I was actually allowed to go back to finish high school, which I'm delighted I did, uh, my last two years, I was a little bit more studious, but not totally. Uh, but fortunately, uh, studious enough that I also got a Commonwealth scholarship to go to uni. Uh, and so I went to Sydney Uni and that was not always good too. Um, I was lucky enough to spend four years doing a three-year program. What was the experience like at university? Because it would have been a little bit different to how it is these days. But what was the study like? And did you, I suppose you've answered the question, but um, were you giving everything to your studies or did you not place that much of an emphasis on it? So it took me two years to actually get through my first year of uni. Fortunately, they were very understanding. And if not, they still pretended they understood. And then I met my husband, who was then my boyfriend, and he was a law school student. And we spent Saturday nights, instead of going to movies or going to the beach or having fun, we would go to the library. Tom was a very studious law school student, and it actually paid off because he graduated from University of Sydney Law School with honours, which his wife did not. And... Um, <laughs> Studying at U Sydney Uni with him was a good thing to do because I finally managed to pass and graduate from uni. Very good. And so towards those back end years of university and you said you went uh, through four years, so it would have been the third or fourth year that you would have started to think about where you wanted to head post-university. When did it start to set in that you might have wanted to go into uh, financial services? Oh, Finn, I'm really bursting all your bubbles now and I apologise. Um, actually, I had no idea what I wanted to do. And when I finally finished graduating, I was nowhere near as planning as you were or strategic and thoughtful as you are uh, as to what I want to do. And probably most of your listeners or anybody who's watching this, um, I took the first job that came along uh, that actually paid. 
And I was very lucky. I got a job working for Colonial Mutual Life Assurance, which I think is still around, being an economist. What that meant was I had to check all the numbers to make sure that they added up correctly for the different regions. And I got paid a princely sum of $5,000, and I thought I was hot stuff. <laughs> I think, I, Josephine, you say that uh, you're bursting all my bubbles, but I think it's just as valuable to hear the experience of uh, not giving your studies everything and, and being somewhat distracted in those first couple of years and then going on to do great things, which I think is a great sign of resilience and persistence. So I think, you know, testament to you for being able to turn that around and, and get onto something great. I suppose the economist experience that you first had would have been uh, a bit of a steep learning curve, but how did you navigate getting in there and, and what was the recruiting process like? Because I know it's, uh, it's incredibly competitive these days uh, to get into a, a place like that. And even the title economist, I think, seems very um, impressive. What was the recruiting process like to get in there? I was very lucky, and this has been throughout my career. Uh, the first person I interviewed who was a senior person um, liked me, I liked them, and there was an immediate rapport. And I think that's one the piece of advice that I would give all your listeners is to make sure that you like the people that you work for. You are going to spend a lot of time sitting at your desk learning. And if you don't like the people, they're not going to like you and you're not going to enjoy your job. And you're going to spend a tremendous number of hours spent behind a desk or behind a computer with people. And frankly, I think that's one of the biggest problems we have right now. And one of the things I worry the most, uh, just bring it to the future about what the pandemic will do to people of your age, Finn, and how they are going to navigate through this whole recruiting process, trying to decide what they want to do. I think it's really important to be able to touch people and to talk to people. Agreed. And I was going to ask you this a little bit later, but I think it's a nice little segue that you've given there um, in terms of how we navigate our careers as, as people my age going through university now. What would your advice be in terms of navigating that um, recruiting process? I think it's really important to do your homework. Uh, it's something that I didn't know at the beginning, but I have learned now. And as I recruit and I interview people, I want them to have done their homework. When you're putting together a resume or a CV, whatever you're going to call it, make sure it really describes who you are. Every single thing on that piece of paper should be correct. It should be honest. It should be absolutely be able to be checked by somebody else because they will. If you go into a large organization, somebody will do a background check. And if there's one thing wrong, you're out of there. I think the second thing that I would make sure of is that you really like the people that you're working with. And thirdly, you really like your boss. And fourthly, you have such great opportunities. When I started, I worked at Goldman Sachs for 27 years. That's a long time to be at any organization. You guys aren't even 27 right now. So you think about that. I had to like what I was doing, and I did. And I really liked the people, and I felt a tremendous camaraderie with them. If you don't like the people, then it really becomes work. I think it was Winston Churchill that said, if you enjoy what you're doing, it's not work. And for me, fortunately, that has been the case. Not always. But once I got to a certain stage of my life and a career, and I finally chose what I wanted to do rather than have the choice for me, uh, I go back to Economist. It was the only job that was around. Uh, and I was lucky enough, I liked the guy and he liked me and he took it. I don't think I did economic work. Uh, as I said, I checked numbers to make sure that they were correct. Uh, back in the days when you actually didn't trust a computer, I know that sounds ridiculous, but people didn't at those days. So I think it's really important to really enjoy what you're doing. And you can do that both through the recruiting process and that comes through. When I interview people, I want to make sure that they've done their homework, they know what they're talking about, 
I don't care if they don't understand everything about finance. That can be taught. But what can't be taught is how you, important you acknowledge reputation is, how important somebody's integrity is, and their energy and their passion and their dedication. Those are things that can't be um, put on a resume, but they come through very quickly in an interview, whether it's on a screen or whether it's in real life. So those are sort of the guidance that I would give for anybody interviewing. All over the world, these uh, junior analysts and, and things along and positions along those lines are really struggling with work-life balance at the moment. So what is what are your thoughts on that and what would the advice be to people who are seeking that work-life balance but also a successful career in the financial services industry? When it comes to work-life balance, you're probably not going to like this, but there isn't such a thing. I think you have to make choices at different times of the day and the night. I've had three children. I've worked full-time. I've travelled. And not everything has always been balanced. I always think of life as being like a seesaw. You know those things in the playground? And where's a time when you're actually a balance? It's only one point when everything, when everybody is like that. And by the way, the best way to do that is when both of you put both of your legs on the floor at the same time. So you need cooperation to have work-life balance. So I think one of the things that people are complaining about is that they don't have the courage to go to their bosses individually and say, hey, I'm working too long. Or, you know, this project that you have me working on, it's too intense. We need to bring more people in. I know people have reacted and I know that the reaction has gotten results, but I think they could have done it a little bit earlier by coming in and saying, hey, you're working us too hard. But if you really feel that you're being overworked, put up your hand, say something. Of course. And so going back to your story individually, after you were an economist, you worked at JB Weir, is that correct? No, nope. after I was not an economist, after I was a checker of numbers, but with the title of economist, please be very careful about that. Uh, we left for America. Um, my husband got a Fulbright scholarship uh, to go and study law. I had the best year of my life working uh, at Berkeley. It was a blast. I'd never been traveling outside of Australia before that. And so going to Berkeley was really eye-opening and so exciting to be in America uh, in the late 70s, early 80s, particularly given all the unrest that was there at that time. Um, so there I didn't work. Uh, he was studying hard and I was having a good time. I had to work to be able to earn enough money. So I did various part-time jobs, everything from babysitting to cleaning. I was a house cleaner. Yes, I cleaned houses. Well, that, that's a good journey. It's it's the juxtaposition of the two roles that you, you were a cleaner and a babysitter and everything, but now look at where you are. And, you know, that's a great reflection of, as I said, the persistence and resilience. So that's a testament to you. By the way, Finn, also, I got yes. news for you. I still babysit yes. my own four grandchildren and I still clean houses. There you go. Staying humble, Josephine. It's uh, so I, I want to move on to so at some point after Tom has finished at Berkeley, where did JB Weir come in? Because I know that was oh, not for a long point. way. Oh, you've got so much in there. We spent two years in Canada and then we moved to Chicago. And in Chicago, I actually started to get serious about life and uh, studies and actually a career. And I went to the University of Chicago. Um, and I got my MBA there, working at night uh, at school at night, by the way, um, because we couldn't afford for me to go full time. So I went to school at night, took me a little bit longer than it would otherwise, but it was a great program. And for once, I actually studied and for, I did really, really well at the University of Chicago. And it made me very proud. 
and I learned a tremendous amount and I enjoyed it thoroughly. And after that, I joined Goldman Sachs, not as an economist. I don't think I would be a very good economist. I now know economists and they're much smarter <laughs> than I am. Uh, but I joined working as a very junior associate uh, in the private wealth management area of Goldman Sachs. Um, I started in the Chicago office. I was then invited several years after that to go to the Philadelphia office to run that office. And then I moved to the New York office and um, have stayed there. Somewhere along that role back in would have been 2000, uh, when Goldman Sachs entered into an agreement with um, J.B. Weir, uh, I was asked to go on the Global Advisory Board of J.B. Weir. And so it was great for me because I got to go home and visit with my family and um, and spend time there, which I couldn't spend as much time before. And I thoroughly enjoyed that, but it was hard work. And I got to meet some terrific people at J.B. Weir. And, but I still remember sitting under the... Um, portrait in Melbourne of Jay Binion's Weir with this guy with the mutton chops. And I thought, and I'd be sitting at the head of the table, me giving lectures and describing what was going on in the world to the eager beavers around the table. And I kept thinking, hmm, I wonder what Mr. Weir would think of me as a girl at the head of this table. It was pretty cool. Tell me a little bit more about that because it would have been very much, I, I think, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming here, a boys club back in those days, uh, especially in the financial services industry. And you speak about JB Weir with the mutton chops and being at the head of the table. What did it feel like to be at the head of the table, you know, giving giving out this advice and, and being in the in the driver's seat almost? Uh, and, and how did you navigate working your way up? Well, I'd already gotten my way up by then because I was a partner of the Goldman Sachs by that yeah. time. Uh, but it felt pretty damn good. Uh, it was very intimidating. Uh, I think one of the things, to be candid, that Australians had a distrust for me at the beginning uh, because here was this girl being transplanted into Australia. What did she know about Australia? What does she really understand? Um, who is she to lecture us about it? You know, whenever there's an acquisition, there's always a, a distrust of people on the other side, or even if it's a not an acquisition, as it wasn't in this case, but a, a merging of two cultures. And so one had to be very sensitive. And I hope I was very sensitive. I It was my internal feeling about being intimidated. It was my internal feeling of being able to look behind at the portrait and saying, here we are. Um, but I've got some great friends from those days and still maintain those friendships. But even before that, when you were working at Goldman Sachs as a very junior analyst as you'd, or associate, as you described it, um, what was the process like? And did you feel as though you, um, like, what were the feelings that you had towards working your way up? And did you feel as though you were at a disadvantage because you're a woman? I was in a very fortunate field at Goldman where you basically ate what you killed, yep. to put it bluntly. Uh, you had to go and get your own clients. So there was no, it was totally objective. If clients didn't want to do business with me, that may have been because I was female, but I didn't necessarily know that. And I found that the harder I worked, the luckier I got. And I think many of the characteristics that I feel I portrayed and was able to get over was not only being very smart but also and a very thorough understanding of markets, asset allocation, the investment process, but having tremendous empathy. And that's one of the things that I deal with clients all the time. 
Our clients are enormously intimate with us. They tell us what's going on with their families and we have to be able to be there. We have to be there to be able to react. We have to be there to give advice and not just financially. And I was fortunate that that was something I was very good at and believe that I'm still good at. Absolutely. I've had clients who have been my that. clients now for almost 35 years. And I yep. think that comes from, and I've dealt with not just their generation, but multi-generations. And I think that comes from an ability to listen. It comes from an ability to have empathy, as well as being very, very knowledgeable about my field. And that's that's incredibly wise uh, when when reflecting upon probably 10 years earlier when you were mucking around at university. Where was the change in attitude and and what did that sort of come from? I know that you spoke about Tom and how he uh, gave you that little bit extra motivation, but where did the real attitude change happen? Gosh, Finn, you're being the psychologist now. <laughs> uh, I think it had a lot to do with Tom. I'd say it had 80% of him also having the confidence that I actually could do something. As I said, I was not a good student in it at uni at all. Even when I'd met Tom, I passed, but that was it. Uh, I think once I had to go to University of Chicago and actually pay my own way and really recognize that there was no safety net, it made me a lot more serious. And I actually really enjoyed it. Maybe it's just through maturity. Maybe it was through a better understanding. Maybe it's through better teaching. Uh, I loved the teaching at uh, University of Chicago. It was very much the Socratic method. I did subjects I enjoyed, not because somebody told me to do them, uh, but because I enjoyed doing those subjects. And for the first time in my life, I could really uh, excel uh, academically. So, uh, and that's a great point and, and really appreciate that insight. But there's also, at that time, there would have been some tremendous mentorship, I'm sure, as well. What, what value did you uh, place on mentorship and do you still think that it is very valuable for someone navigating their career? I think mentorship is key to anybody's career. And it's not just one mentor. It's really what I call having a board of directors. You need different mentors for different processes, different people to be able to call at different times for different people. Um, I've been very fortunate that I've had some absolutely fantastic mentors. And, uh, you know, I call it uh, different horses for different courses. But I was so fortunate at Goldman um, to have a mentor who was my boss, a man called Terry. Um, Terry and I became enormously close. In fact, when he passed away, I was one of the two people that gave his eulogy, the other one being a person who ran the entire division at Goldman, a cathedral of over 1,500 people. And I was felt so honoured and privileged to be invited that he'd become my best friend and I had become his best friend. And uh, it was it had taken mentoring to a whole new high. I think with mentors, some mentoring relationships are really easy and they become friendships and others are strained and you realize that they may just be there for a while, but you need that mentor for a period of time. The best mentors are where they become friends, and you can give as much back to that person as they give to you. It truly is a hand-in-glove process to be a great mentor. I mean, I take the example of we have the most fantastic chief of staff right now, Louisa. Louisa comes from Australia. Uh, she was one of our fellows several years ago. She kept in touch with me. I've kept in touch with her. And I came to really, really understand how good she was. 
and she came onto the shores of America, oh, I'm going to say in October of last year, and she's quietly looked at things that I do and she's suggested many ways that I could improve. I've hopefully been able to help her in ways that she can get better and stronger. So to me, it's really a two-way process and that's what you want best in a mentor. And so on the side of the coin of the mentee, uh, what advice would you give to people who might not necessarily know how to contribute in, in the way that you've just mentioned? Well, the first thing is, is you don't go to somebody and say, hey, will you be my mentor? That's not natural. What happens is you're in a very natural situation where somebody will come to you and you find a way to help them. Uh, you, you guys all understand technology way better than I do, okay? So how are there ways in which you can go to somebody and say, I notice that you're doing this or I notice you're having trouble getting into Excel or I notice that, you know, you're doing this in a way, can I help you a little bit? And people are so grateful for that kind of help and they'll do that. We have another Aussie, uh, Nick, who works with us. Uh, he's from Melbourne, so I don't hold that too much against him. Um, <laughs> but he's always my technology guru. And he laughs at me because I always say to him, hey, Nick, can you do me a favor? And he knows it's going to be something really stupid, like how do you turn an iPhone on? I'm not that bad, but pretty close <laughs> to it. Uh, and he knows he very seriously and methodically will walk me through it. So I don't feel stupid. And he's there to, to help me, but I'm also there to help him. I want to change tack a little bit and turn to, you mentioned Nick and Louisa moving over to to America and relocating to New York at a time uh, that would have been pretty tough for Louisa in particular. Can you tell me about the experience that you had when you moved over and how tough was it to integrate with a culture that you weren't really used to? It was very lonely. Make no mistake about it. Uh, fortunately, the first year that I spent was in Berkeley, where it was very much of a university town. And so we had a lot of international students there. And so that wasn't as tough. I think the tougher time was when we moved to Ottawa for two years. That was cold. It was lonely. I actually couldn't get a job because of visa issues and um, didn't acclimatize at all. Moved to Chicago, a lot easier. Uh, my husband actually had gotten a job as a lawyer in which uh, a law firm there, which he became a partner of. And uh, it took some time uh, reaching out to people. But the, the law firm uh, put their arms around us and helped us make friends. And again, just like from Goldman Sachs, many of our friends are still from those days in uh, the law firm. And so particularly in New York, it would have been really tough for you, you know, during times like 9-11 and now the pandemic and things like that. What kept your love for the city and what kept you very attracted to staying there and not having the temptation to move back home? Well, they're two totally different times, okay? 9-11 was terrorist. I remember yep. that day vividly. I remember being in the street. I saw the first building coming down right on top of, of where I was. I remember seeing the people running like they were the bulls from... Uh, Spain. I remember hiding because we didn't know what was going on at that time. Very, very different. No warning, scary as could be. Uh, the reaction was one of pulling together, that we're all in this together. We all understand each other and we're here for you. Similar to what the pandemic is, but it's a different kind of thing. And this is a slow burn. We, in 9-11, we were back within three weeks maybe even be two weeks, but things were different. You had a lot of dogs around, sniffing dogs. You were scared to be on the subway. You were um, just didn't know what was going on. But 
you felt some safety because the country was taking care of us. Here it's very much your own. You have to be your own guard. You have to have your mask on. Uh, you have to keep social distance. People are now getting vaccinated. But it's, a, it's an invisible enemy, and it's one that every single person is treated differently. I think on 9-11 it was a group mass. We're all dealing with the same thing. Here everybody has different conditions. Some people have, have asthma. Some people have heart conditions. They're more prone. If you're healthy and you stay inside on your, in your own little bubble, much better chance of you surviving this. So I think they're different. Um, love for the city, it's exciting. There's no question about it. By the way, I still love Sydney. I still love Australia. And as the song goes, I still call Australia home. Um, but it's easy to, it's good for me to have two different places that I like. And I've been very fortunate that way. I mean, I do want to touch on another, um, you know, particular incident that would have been pretty hard to navigate as a New Yorker, the global financial crisis. And that would have been as a New Yorker and somebody in the professional in financial services industry, uh, what was the biggest specific challenge that you would have endured during that time? It's a good question. I think that didn't matter whether you're in New York, you're in London, you're in Tokyo. Australia was the only country that actually did the bet that did okay out of the GFC, although I hear complaints about it even now. By the way, the GFC is only the GFC in Australia. Everywhere else calls it the crash of 2008 or some other um, uh, synonym for it. Oh, wow. But Didn't know that. Australians are very good at acronyms. But in any yeah. case, I think it was a very different situation because there it was actually something that you might not be able to control, but you could take measures. In my area, we're very much thinking about investment and performance and quality of investments. And so we would look at asset allocation. One could take measures specifically to look at portfolios and to make recommendations. And that's what we did. So it was more of an intellectual exercise. Yes, some clients lost money, but they lost money more on paper rather than losing it like in 29, uh, 1929, where people were jumping out of windows um, because they'd lost everything. People had lost only on paper. Well, people had lost, but and their savings had gone down tremendously. But I think there it was more of a sitting back and saying, what is going on here? How can we intellectualize it? How can we think about it? And the fact of the matter is, is that look where we are, what, 13 years later, <coughs> and look where markets have improved, look where interest rates are comparatively. So if you'd held on to what was in your portfolio and it was of value, it was okay. That's not to say there wasn't a lot of shock. That doesn't mean that we weren't working overtime. Um, thinking through the process. But again, it was more of an intellectual exercise than uh, either the um, pandemic of today or 9-11. Can you remember some of the specific intellectual exercises that you would have uh, encountered at that point? Was it, Did you have any particular big decisions that you had to make that you uh, remember pretty clearly of that time? I was leading the um, the private wealth management group in New York of Goldman at that time. And so had to reach out to people, talk to people. And that was one of the things that we were always encouraged to do. And I would always encourage my staff to do that is talk to clients, make sure they're not reading about it in the newspaper and don't know what's going on and that they're calling you in shock. Talk to people, reach out to people. What is going on? Why is it going on? What is happening? What is the advice? Where do we go from here? How can we handle it? Be calm. 
be calm. Look at it as an exercise as to what's happening. Look in the portfolio. Are you pleased with what's in the portfolio? Is everything of quality? If it isn't, get rid of the rubbish. Do you understand everything that's in the portfolio? If you don't, get rid of it. You have to be pretty um, radical in looking through portfolios, but hopefully that's something that you've been doing all along in anticipation that there could be a crisis. And by the way, we knew back in even in 2007 that there was a lot of froth in the markets. Um, probably too young to remember, but in the summer of 2007, private equities were having tremendous trouble. So your portfolios should have been much higher quality, uh, should have been very well allocated. And I'm not saying people didn't have severe losses, again, on paper, but it was a time that of reflection and reaching out to families. And was that, I was going to ask you if there was a particular framework that you would have used when dealing with uh, solving these complex problems. But I suppose in your case, I, I'm assuming it would have been more about empathy and, and connection rather than having a set framework that you would work things through. Is that, is that correct? I think a lot of, that's correct. A lot of it is listening. A lot of it is seeing where are the losses and why are there losses? Is this the market or is this specific to their portfolio? Is this the market or is this specific to their goals? Are we going to be able to make their goals? Is somebody going to be able to afford to pay their bills? Why not? What do we have to do? So it was a line of questioning and, and yeah, connection rather than going through a framework. And I think that's um, reflective of your personality as well. I think, as you described a little bit earlier, it's all about empathy and connection with your uh, client. So another one that I, I'm really interested in is... Uh, what were the particular learnings from the GFC and what did you take out of that experience that you didn't have before? You know, it's it's a good question. And I don't mean to sound arrogant here, but all the things that I've just talked about were things that should have been done and hopefully were being done. Mm -hmm. And so... You know, I've, I've worked with some families now, as I said earlier, for over 30 years. They still have things in their portfolios that they had during the GFC because we knew they'd go up again because we felt confident that they would go up again. We didn't know. But we felt confident because they were quality. It was the kind of investment they wanted to make. And so you look through everything and you try and understand why does that stock gone down? Why is that company not doing so well? And so you look at that and said you got rid of things that you didn't want to have in the portfolio that you couldn't explain or weren't quality or speculative. I mean, I don't know that much about Bitcoin. Remember Nick, the technology guy, he knows everything about Bitcoin. If we were going to have a Bitcoin implosion, I wouldn't be the person to talk about. But by the way, I wouldn't have 100% of any client's portfolio in Bitcoin. And so I think it's that kind of strategy and thinking through which allowed me to navigate uh, 2008. And so you come out of the other side of the great crash of 2008 and you finish up with Goldman Sachs and start your own wealth management advisory firm. Tell me about the process of doing. Pretty scary. I always knew that I wanted to, as you get more senior in an organization, you spend a lot of time mentoring, working with people. And I love the investment process. I loved working directly with clients. Um, as the leader of the group, I wasn't working directly with clients, but with other people's clients. And I really wanted to get back to that day-to-day -day management of portfolios. I 
when I left the firm, I, the first thing I did was I went and taught as an adjunct professor at Columbia University. That was great. I got an experience that I would really explain to everybody to try and do something like that. Teaching may be the most difficult thing to do because your students are so demanding and they're wanting so many different things and they should, they deserve it. And so I learned what was a good teacher and what was not a good teacher. And by the way, I think one of the reasons I didn't do so well at uni is I don't think all my teachers there were teaching. They were lecturers. Uh, mm -hmm. When I got to school at uh, or university in America, they were not just lecturers, but they were also teachers. And I think that, as I think back on it, was a fundamental difference. So I tried to teach and I think I did okay. I knew I wasn't going to do that forever because I really wanted to have a little gap between the time I left Goldman and the time that I started my own firm. But we did that. It's now been 10 years this year. Uh, very exciting. Uh, I actually hadn't even realized it was 10 years until my team surprised me one day and said, happy 10-year anniversary. And I went, oh, my goodness, I, you know, <laughs> it is time gone. Um, it was pretty scary. Uh, I was very fortunate to have some really, really good mentors at the firm who I'd stayed in touch with. And uh, they asked if I would like to have office space with them, which I did. Uh, I continue to share office space with them, and they're extraordinary. I'm really, really fortunate. I have two that ran the trading desk, one who ran the London office, and one who ran the research department. I mean, that wealth of knowledge that, although they're not part of my team, if I have any question of, of advice or judgment, I can go to them, and it's a real blessing for me. But I wasn't sure that we'd ever be successful. In fact, one of my great mentors had such confidence in me uh, when I told him that I was going to start this business. He says, well, you better stay with us because if you're not successful, you don't want to be on your own. I said, well, thank you very much for that real vote of confidence. And then after the first year, when I actually was reasonably successful, I went to him and said, not only am I, is this okay and this is going to be an ongoing project, but I'm going to have to move because I need more space because I need to hire more people. And he kind of looked at me. He's a lot older than me. And he said to me, mm, well, if you move, we move. I mean, what a compliment. What a conditional blessing was amazing. And so I found enough space, not only for my team, but also for them. And so we've been together now and it's really, it's a miracle. And I truly love these people. Reflecting upon those 10 years, and congratulations, by the way, that's a tremendous effort to uh, go through 10 years, especially get through the pandemic and things. That's, that's a great testament to the team that you've built there. Uh, I just want to know, what were the main drivers that led you to go to, the, to create the firm and, and what was the mindset like at that time? You obviously said that it was uh, very scary and daunting, but why did you want to break away from Goldman and go and do your own thing? I wanted to deal just with investing, just with clients. I wanted to build a business that was transparent, conflict-free, that I could spend time with my clients, our clients, and build an organization within a smaller group uh, and be able to, frankly, be my own boss. And so what are the biggest attributes that you look for in young people coming into the financial services industry th these days? And what do you think the biggest attributes are that will lead to a successful career in the industry? I think they're the same attributes for anybody in any industry, frankly. I think you've got to be really liking, I've said this before, you really have to like what you do. I don't care whether it's going to be in finance, it's going to be in the medical field, it's going to be in retail, it's going to be in book writing, it's going to be in the hospitality area, whatever it is, like what you do. Then everything else is easy. 
You need to have, be dedicated. You need to be committed. You need to try and learn as much as you can. You need to absorb information. And But if you don't like what you're doing, you're not going to be able to do any of that. And I think those are also the attributes for somebody continuing to do well. And so you touch on a little bit about the philanthropies um, that you are engaged with. What has been the biggest um, takeaway from that? Well, it feels really good. As Warren Buffett once says, you know, it's really easy when you to make money. It's much harder to give it away. It's good to make money and you'll feel good. You'll feel better giving it away. And I think Warren Buffett's a very smart man, so I would agree with that totally. <laughs> Thank you so much, Josephine Linden. It has been an incredible chat. I've really enjoyed hearing all the insights and nuances that have existed in your career. I think there's some really key takeaways that I've gotten from our conversation. So thank you so much for taking the time. My pleasure, Finn. And I must say, I'm very proud of all that you are doing and all that you have achieved. And by the way, as I said, mentoring is a two-way process and you are very good in reaching out to me on a regular occasions. Thank you so much, Josephine. Really look forward to keeping in touch. Well, that's it for the second episode of Project Next. What an incredibly unique and fascinating career. Special thanks to Josephine for joining me, as well as Declan Shields, Jai Jones, and the rest of the incredibly talented Jam TV team for the supreme editing work. Another shout out to Lies Designs for the amazing Project Next branding that I am so proud of. And a final extra special thanks to you for coming on the journey with me so far. I'm so excited to continue working with you to create the best business podcast on the market. So don't forget to leave some feedback below. That's it for now. Looking forward to Ebb3 very soon. In the meantime, take care and chat soon.